Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He's Donald Trump was in Ohio. He said, let it go, let it go. And you know, he came got, right got, out. We played, it. we played the video a lot. He <laughs> no says sir. this is a tax on China. Is it, though? No economist I know agrees with that statement. That's what's so interesting about this round of tariffs. If, and I say if, it is implemented on September 1st, these are the consumer items that were spared from the first few rounds of tariffs. It could be an incremental hit to growth if it's implemented, but this could be the thing that consumers feel if the price of his smartphone starts to go a little bit higher. Weighing in on all of this, I'm pleased to say that dropping by the studio is Michelle Meyer, B of A, Merrill Lynch, head of US Economics. Good morning to you, Michelle. Good morning. Typically, first Friday of the month, we'd be leading with payrolls. We're yes. leading with trade this morning. What does that say about payrolls a little bit later? You know, I think it's the fact that you have these external factors that are overwhelming um, the the incoming data. So the, the what happens around trade is by far the most important risk factor out there. And it's going to be more of a forward-looking story as well, right? So what happens to jobs today is not necessarily going to be a function or a factor for how you think about growth in the future if these tariffs go into place. This is the view from Deutsche Bank going into the number we await payrolls, but this data has been rendered largely irrelevant if it is strong, but will reinforce latest bond bull signals and negative risk if the data is weak. How do you frame it for clients this morning, whether this data matters or not, what it means if it's strong, what it means if it's weak? Yeah, I mean, I hate to say that jobs don't matter. You know, I hate to say any economic data doesn't matter because, you know, we do take all incoming information into our forecast and think carefully about it. And jobs are important. They're important. They're telling us about, you know, how many people are getting hired and how they're getting paid, etc. So it matters. Um, if we have a strong report, I think it tells us that there's a bit more resiliency of the U.S. economy to some of these risks and that companies, while they may be starting to cut back on their investment in capital, they're still investing mm-hmm. in labor and people still have jobs and there's some ability for the consumer to withstand some of these tariffs. That said, of course, the big risk factor out there is what happens on trade, and that's where people well, and markets are most focused. Let's reset. 12 months forward, what's your GDP call GDP call for the United States? So we think we have growth essentially returning to trend 1.8% on a... On Sub 2% a, yes. is where you are now. Yes. And if, if we put in a tax on China, as the president puts it, yeah. you got to <laughs> mark that down, right? Yeah, so that's the challenge. Is that so are you modeling a growth recession? Um, well, not yet. Um, so we think we're going to Can I make be, some news here? Come on. <laughs> we think we're going to be leveling off right around um, trend, maybe on a one to two quarter basis. You fall slightly below trend, but the, the overall trajectory yeah, is still... It, but. But yes, I mean, I think it, it, it's partly going to be a function of how central banks offset this shock from trade. Right, but what's important here, John, is in American politics, 1.8% Michelle Meyer trend doesn't get you reelected. Mm. That's what this is really about. Yeah, going into 2020 and the prospect of perhaps not getting a trade deal either, which seems to have been injecting some urgency into the White House maybe over the last couple of days. Michelle, just on the payrolls report and on global manufacturing, manufacturing's in a recession worldwide at the moment. I think we can all agree on that. Mm-hmm. The risk is that it bleeds into services. Do you see that happening? Do you see it taking hold of the service sector in any way, shape or form here in the United States at the moment? So it's really interesting is on manufacturing, yes, it's a global manufacturing downturn. Um, 
But in the U.S., the manufacturing data has been marginally better. The ISM survey is still above 50. It hasn't fallen into contraction territory. Manufacturing jobs, based off the last few reports and ADP this week, are actually still increasing very modestly, but there is some growth. So I think what would be really um, interesting with today's report is whether or not the manufacturing sector is continuing to add jobs. And then, you know, what do you see on the services side? On the service side so far, there's been little evidence of a spillover from these global um, challenges into uh, the server-side economy. But obviously, it's something we have to keep a very close eye on. And that's something that Fed Chair Powell is very concerned about. So far, so good for the U.S. consumer. So far, yes. so good for the labor market. You bring up Fed Chair Jay Powell, so let's talk about it. Going into yesterday, the chances of a September rate cut were 50-50, there and thereabouts. Then after the trade news crossed the Bloomberg, guess what? We approach almost 100% for a September right. rate cut. Right. Once more, that interplay between yeah. White House trade trade policy and Federal Reserve easing. How important is that at the moment, Michelle? I think that is the key story, this idea of an adverse feedback loop where um, President Trump puts more pressure in terms of greater tariffs and that weakens economic growth. It creates some greater risk factors out there. And then you have the power put that becomes ever more powerful um, and you see a central bank response. So for the markets to say, okay, the tariffs might happen, but we have a backstop. Fed Chair Powell is just going to cut. But do we have a backstop? I think we've got to talk about that. This belief that the chairman can underwrite trade policy from the White House can it actually offset so some I, of the global risk I, factors? I would make the case, and I think Powell tried to make this case, is that he doesn't want to be underwriting trade policy. He's got no choice, has he? <laughs> and that's really where the, the friction, I think, comes from. It's not the intention to give President Trump a green light to go right. ahead and be tough on trade. But if you consider what his mandate is, mandate is to support economic growth, ensure maximum employment. And if you have a big shock, which they are taking as external, they are assuming this is a pure exogenous shock. They're not being political about it. They're saying, okay, we have a big shock. We need to offset with monetary policy. If I look at the yields on my Bloomberg screen in the United States, 170, two-year, 185, 10-year, stunning, 239, 30-year bond, are those, quote unquote, good for America? So, you know, it, it sure looks like, yeah. what, 1932, I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, is, is that good for I mean, I know it's good for real estate guys like right. the guy who lives above the Gucci store on Fifth Avenue. But is it good for America? You know, so what it, I think the idea is that what it's signaling about where we are as an economy, no, it's not good. You know, it, it, would it be a much better signal if we had above 3% on the 10-year or even 4% on the 10-year? That would be a signal of an economy that's growing you know, GDP growth is trending 3%, inflation's running 2%. You know, that would obviously be a better story. Um, so the fact that interest yeah. rates are so low, it is indicative of an economy that trend growth is lower right. and inflation is more stubbornly low. Can we pretend it's a normal Friday? What's your non-farm payrolls number? Oh, good. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never ask. But today I will because nobody cares. What is yeah, it? It's um, We're looking for 170000 for non-farm okay. payrolls. Okay, 170. Carl Riccadon is at a 185. Michelle yeah. Meyer, thank you. Thanks. I, I apologize we didn't do anything on housing. I'm Next sorry. Time. Next, Next time, time we'll do that. Next time. Let's right now fold this economics and the Trump 
uh, as he said, an Ohio tax on China shock into what it means for Washington. Henrietta Trace joins us. Love having her on from Veda Partners. I mean, Henrietta, you're going to tell me the House and the Senate support President Trump's tax on China? <laughs> hey, Tom. Um, you know, I was thinking one of the best anecdotes I've got is when I was in a meeting with um, the Senate Majority Whip at the time, John Cornyn, and I'm speaking yes. with his chief of staff. And he, and I asked him, you know, on a scale from one to ten, how big a deal is this trade war? How big a deal are these China tariffs? And point blank, the answer was three. It's a three. I would say now maybe it's at like a five or a six based on my conversations with senior counsel in the last 24 hours. But they're not inclined to stop them. The one, the one tariff that really does spook them is the potential for tariffs on automobiles against the EU. But they'll only act on that after those right. tariffs go into effect. So, so I mean, they don't care about the fiscal good. policy, one point X trillion dollar debt coming down the pike, what we're doing to our grandchildren, etc. You're telling me they're not going to con- uh, matter about cell phone tariff and consumer product tariffs across all of America? I I sincerely believe that. And they are looking at polling data from their constituents. And amongst the Republican Party, you've got roughly 80 percent approval for Republicans. I I don't disagree. Yeah. Yeah. And so and that's what they're that's what's driving them. Um, I had one client who very astutely said, you know, if I was the president, I'd put this on in August when everybody's gone. Nobody's going to pay attention. And that's lo and behold, August 1st comes around and that's what we got. Henrietta, it goes into effect September 1st. I just wonder what the minimum condition for progress is to back away from that. Any idea? You know, I I appreciate the question, but I would just push back a little bit because I get this from investors on the minute. The reality is it's USTR policy to provide a grandfather clause for inventories that have been ordered by the business community to travel from across the Pacific to get to their port in the United States. That is something we have seen five consecutive times in a row with the first, second, third, and fourth tranches, and then uh, the escalation to 25%. They provide three to five weeks of leeway for cargo to come across the ocean if they're on a ship or if they're in the air or what have you. Um, They even granted an extra 15 days in the last May escalation. This is not an an indicator that they're not serious. There's no scenario above 5% odds that they don't put these tariffs on September 1st. This four-week grace period is literally the least they could do to prevent disruption to existing inventories. So let's talk about countermeasures then, Henrietta. The Chinese out this morning, if the U.S. is going to implement the additional tariffs, China will have to take necessary countermeasures. What do those countermeasures look like? Well, after the second round of tariffs, they switched from doing a dollar-for-dollar retaliation into a percentage-based retaliation. So right now, both sides have tariffed roughly 60% of each other's inventories. This $300 billion escalation from the U.S. side represents about 40%, um, maybe 50%, uh, given the president decided that it was going to be a little bit more than that. Um, so I would expect China to retaliate by putting tariffs on maybe 40 to $80 billion, which would be as a percentage basis, uh, tit-for-tat. And then we saw yesterday that they canceled some significant pork purchases. Um, There are anecdotal reports from the business community of increased red tape and all that. That will continue. Well, I'm glad you bring this up because it's alluded in the last 12 hours off this bombshell from the president that they have not purchased the agricultural products. Do you have evidence of that, Henrietta? 
Um, well, I saw it in your reporting from yesterday morning uh, that they canceled the pork purchase. So I assume that that's valid. Um, and what we're looking for is not just a couple million um, yeah. uh, purchases from soybeans, but we need we need somewhere in the range of two hundred to three hundred billion dollar commitments from China in the next two years in order for President Trump to feel like he's delivered. Where will that come from? Where does that? I mean, is that corn or wheat or you know? It, it's got to be everything. So that's got to be everything from soybeans to sorghum, uh, corn, wheat. It needs Why to be would they agree? Henry, look, you're great at the, at the non-rudeness, the grace of Washington. John Farrow is extremely rude, and I'm less <laughs> extremely rude, but still rude. You're not. The president made this announcement. I believe Secretary Mnuchin was upset because he didn't brief the Chinese before the announcement. Why are they at the margin going to buy more agricultural products on this Friday morning? Oh, I, I wouldn't expect that they would. And they have basically said since um, I want to I want to say really since December 2nd, G20 Argentina, they uh, committed to making substantial agriculture purchases. And that was what, like seven months ago. They still have not. OK, Henry, um, so- we got to leave it there. Thanks for the great briefing. Henry, trades with Veda. Thank uh, you, Henry. As well. Ellen Zentner joins. She runs U.S. Economics at Morgan Stanley. She's won every trophy out there and right now has a trophy call from the greater Morgan Stanley. A real cautious caution, I should say, on the market. Ellen, are you going to have to adjust your economic call, your Excel spreadsheet, because of what the president announced yesterday? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. I mean, you know, economists loathe making uh uh, changes on the fly, but uh, I think at the at the very least, um, subjectively, you know, you'll see recession probabilities go up. The models may not pick up right. those kinds of things yet, right? But subjectively, um, you you have to assume uh, more risk and more recession risk, specifically on the back of this kind right. of announcement. What what's your run rate now? Twelve months forward. So 12 months forward, we've still got uh, 20% probability, um, but you can easily see that uh, going higher. Uh, you know, at, at one in right. three, I would not be surprised right now, right? Because it's just the, the amount of uncertainty is incredible. Now, what's been keeping recession probabilities low in terms of just models? The real data. And one reason why uh, the, the Fed resisted uh, many of the policymakers ended up resisting delivering 50 basis points, uh, which was, as you know, against our advice, um, but uh, failed to do that because they just – traditional monetary policymaking is, I want to see it in the data first. I really don't like being preemptive. I think Chair Powell had made a push to try to be preemptive, um, but traditional monetary policymaking won uh, on Wednesday, and they decided just to cut 25 basis points because they couldn't see it in the real data. But at what point? Do you need to assume that that's coming? Uh, and, you know, the consumer is really the last holdout for the economy. You know, in all your leading sectors, and the GDP benchmark revisions showed this, 
inventories down and falling, uh, investment uh, down and falling, profits, and specifically undistributed profits. Right. So what do I have left over at the end of the day as a company yeah. to hire and to invest? All of that is down. So how long can you assume that the rest of the economy yeah. holds up? Ellen, we got to let John Farrow in here because he's going to speak with free trader Lawrence Cudlow. John? Ellen, what do you want to know from the administration this morning? What do you think the main question is for so many people on Wall Street? I think we're always trying to gauge what the pain point is. Uh, you know, how can they assure American households uh, that uh, we're going to be able to fight this fight without you losing your job? Uh, you know, and I think at the end of the day, that's what everyone wants to know. You know, at what cost are you willing to uh, continue to play this game and keep uncertainty on such a high level? Well, Ellen, it just felt like yesterday in the, in the little gaggle of reporters that the president spoke to that he didn't seem too concerned about the market impact of his decision yesterday, that he wasn't too concerned. He said something along the lines of that the market and market participants hadn't fully understood what had happened. I'm not sure what that actually means, Ellen, but is that a change, a little bit of a shift at this White House? Well, yeah, I think, our, you know, early on it was always, okay, the, you know, President Trump's pain point is the stock market, and as long as the stock market is holding up, that's his cue that you can push this further, and if it's not holding up, then that would be, um, you know, his... Uh, 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 circuit breaker, if you will. So, uh, you know, apparently the Fed is his circuit breaker in that, you know, uh, you know, he can get 100 basis points out of the FOMC in terms of interest rate cuts one way or another. And one way that he's learned how to do that then is Okay, you only delivered a 25 basis point cut. You said that uh, it's yeah, all about trade, Ellen so is, I'll know to go further oh, and get more cuts. Ellen, yeah. is he going to deliver a recession? Well, that's the so that's the risk, right? I mean, is is are you really going to thread that needle so finely that you know that you can push it hard enough that the Fed's got your back, so to speak, and will cut in order to keep the economy afloat? Because the Fed can't play that game, right? They're not going to play a game of chicken with the president on the economy. Uh, and so, but if you know the Fed has. Uh, your back, and then it gives you more cover uh, to push trade further. But the risk is, of course, as you note, recession risks are rising. The risk is that you push the economy into recession. And as you know, we don't elect the incumbent party um, if we have recession in an election year. Uh, and so that is the risk uh, that, that apparently the president is willing to take. So Ellen, Chairman Powell tried his best not to get drawn into criticizing trade policy in the news conference. I'm sure he's trying his best not to be the, the guy that has to underwrite trade policy, but it just feels like that's who he is now. So is September well and truly in play? Are you looking for a rate cut? So uh, after the, so as you know, we expected 50 basis points to be yeah. delivered on Wednesday. Our argument was that the message that you send to markets is that you will be aggressive up front and do whatever it takes. Having failed to do that, the, the market now has no confidence that the Fed will do whatever it takes. So that's one problem with not having started off aggressive. The risk there is that you're forced to do more as a follow-up and deliver that 50 basis point cut anyway. Um, right now, we have them, and this was an expectation we set on Wednesday, that we have the next uh, cut 
uh, coming in October. Uh, because yeah. you know, when when we look at the data pattern, inflation is going to be rising here going into the September meeting. We didn't see that jobs. You know, we don't see in our models that jobs are going to fall off or the consumer is going to fall off. But you know, yesterday right. was a different day. Well, yesterday was a different day. Have you run the partial differentials on NX on the back of the equation? How much do you take down GDP with a ten percent tariff on everything remaining? So the modeling that we've done on 10% on everything remaining, 25% on everything yeah, remaining, yeah. 10%, 10%, if you just model it straight, right, 10%, even though you're hitting a lot of consumer goods, uh, does not make a material difference on GDP. Then why are we all Where, lathered up about this? Well, because here's the lather, Tom. I'm getting ready to lather you up. The, uh, the lather is in how it affects business confidence, consumer confidence. CapEx, jobs. It's in the nonlinearity of financial okay. conditions and confidence. It's less so on just the direct mechanical impact to GDP. And of course, those other factors are, that's the fuzzy side of economics. There's a lot of judgment that goes into that uh, because certainly today when <clears throat> margins are already running so thin, there's not a lot more room that companies okay. have to absorb uh, this kind of increase in well, cost. Let's take the partition of the economy. Joe Lavorne over at Nataxis was brilliant on emphasizing manufacturing off a cliff. Fine. The goods producing CPI is in the you know deflation, disinflation. Are you predicting that service sector CPI given the, the Trump strategy, will come down and begin to dampen general inflation like Dallas trimmed and all that? Does that roll over and come down or not? Well, uh, not on any kind of timeline that uh, markets certainly want to look at. So from tariffs, the immediate effect, of course, is, again, just going back to the mechanics of it, uh, is, you know, import prices rise, then PPI prices, so you get at the wholesale level, and then consumer prices. So yeah, okay. a 10% yeah. tariff going in on September 1st, you could see it start to show up in CPI numbers by, say, November, December. Uh, and that, and so, yeah, you get that impact where it lifts inflation. Yeah. But, of course, the Fed looks through that. Uh, you know, it starts to affect in, impact consumer spending because they're not going to, unless income is outpacing that, Delta you're not going to be able to overcome that. You start to dampen consumer demand. And so after uh, hitting yeah. aggregate demand, okay. then it starts to have a gravitational yeah. pull on inflation. But you're talking yeah. it well into next year okay. where then it starts to turn inflation Ellen, in the other direction. I got bad news. Jim Gorman just emailed in James Gorman and he says, are you going to talk about jobs with Ellen? What do you think of jobs day, please? So I think Jobs Day is going to be perfectly fine, but I think markets are going to take this as backward looking. Uh, you know, jobless claims. So th there are two things that you got to look at, right? Were businesses laying yeah. off? Well, we know they weren't, and we're really good at predicting that because we've got weekly initial jobless yeah, claims. Yeah, and they're yeah. still remaining extremely low. What we're not as good at, uh, and this is not a knock to me and my team, it's just economists in general, we're not as good at picking up in real time. Did yeah. hiring change? Was there some slowdown in hiring? It doesn't feel like that occurred yeah. uh, in July. It feels like no. this is going to be a pretty nice number. So we've got close to 190,000 yeah. in July. Um, and so I don't think there's going to be a wow. message today. Ellen. 186 to get it. Oh, oh, please. Thank God. Can you go 186,422? Great. Ellen Zentner, love having you. Thank, thank you. you so much. With Morgan Stanley.
pleased to say that Kathy Jones joins us now, Schwab Centre for Financial Research Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Good morning to you, Kathy. Your initial take, please. Uh, yeah, I would agree with Jim. This is a this is a pretty good report all the way around. Um, I'm encouraged to see the labor force participation rate picking up. That's that's certainly a good sign, and uh, the underemployment rate coming down. It's around seven percent. That's uh, it's not at the historic low, but it's getting pretty close to it. Probably the only weakness is those downward revisions yeah. taking away about 40,000 jobs from the prior couple of months, but not uh, not enough to really change. The right. picture, it's pretty good. Kathy, link in what you're seeing with an earnings reports, revenue reports at Schwab, really coast to coast. At the margin, will we see a corporate labor cost cutting? You know, I think in some industries that's probably going to be the case. Um, but I think overall, uh, the, the big swing factor here we all know is trade, right? That's the thing that's driving business investment or lack thereof. That's the thing that's driving optimism or lack thereof. So um, once we get a resolution on that, if we get a resolution on that, then I think that that could be an important component of, of what happens with the labor market. Uh, within the labor market, then, is a wage frame for us a wage dynamic you see right now. We're seeing the gradual rise in overall average hourly earnings. Um, if you look a little deeper into the wage growth, you, you are seeing some acceleration in certain industries. But the average is being held down by the fact that we add a lot of jobs in the lower wage sectors of the economy, yeah. which, you know, you'd expect at this point in the cycle. That's a good thing. At this point in the cycle, we're bringing people yeah. in, and many of those are in lower wage areas. But that holds down the average. But within that, starting to see some pretty good uh, wage well, increases in other areas. Kathy, you were talking to Jim Glassman about this before, and to me, this is the heart of the matter, and it's the number one male I get from our listeners coast to coast is they don't look at it as a good economy because they see it as an unweighted barbell or uh, unbalanced barbell, I should say, with a lot of low-wage jobs being created. I mean, I get it. It's unit job growth, but are they quality jobs? Well, you know, clearly it would be nice if at this point with unemployment at 3.7%, if we were seeing uh, stronger average wage growth. So, no, a lot of these are, say, healthcare services, and, and many of these are lower wage jobs. But again, if you're pulling in people who've been sidelined, mm -hmm. typically that's where you're going to see the jobs being created. So, all jobs are good jobs in that sense. But yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't have a feel good factor that it might have in previous cycles. Well, within that, let's move it to the fixed income area as well. Now, you've had a huge shock of what the president said uh, yesterday afternoon. How do you adjust your fixed income strategy when you barbell an okay labor economy with the trade war that, that was accentuated yesterday afternoon? Yeah, this is really tough, and barbell is kind of the key word there. Um, what do you do with a barbell? I mean, I mean, what do I do if yeah. I've got gains in bonds right now? Well, you know, I think you need to hold on to some intermediate or long-term bonds because the overall trajectory of global rates is still down. I mean, look at all the negative-yielding bonds we have in Europe right now. And if the trade war continues, those yields are going to continue to fall. So you need something with duration. But we like the barbell idea, have some short-term and have some long-term, and kind of miss that middle dip in the yield curve. Let me do a data check right now. We have a deterioration here. Uh, all in all, we are negative 12. Then we advanced higher 
uh, a better tape. And right now, negative 15 Dow futures, uh, negative 99 yields, I'm going to say, are churning all in all. Maybe a little higher yields off of where we were before the jobs uh, report. The 10-year yield, 1.87%. Gold was up $20, now up $18.1449. Yields. Currencies really don't play uh, today all in all. Sterling, I should say, 121.23. Kathy Jones with us with Schwab. Uh, right now. Kathy, so I got a barbell approach in bonds, but I want to go outside full faith and credit to try to capture a higher yield. Where do I do that? Yeah, it's getting tough to find great valuation. So say in the corporate market, um, high yield spreads versus treasuries are pretty tight. And if we do um, get a slowdown, further slowdown in the global economy and further slowdown here because of trade, um, that doesn't offer you a lot of value. So if you're going to go out, um, we're suggesting just higher credit quality in corporates or, you know, if you if you were in a high-tax state like New York, uh, yeah. you might look at the muni market. Oh, come on. You want me to look at the muni market where that's priced up? The feeding frenzy of acquisition there, of price up and yield down, you have value in munis? You know, you have to pick your spots really carefully on the muni curve right now. It's very overvalued at the, at the short end of the curve. You can find yeah. a little bit of value if you go intermediate term. Okay, well, the, the, we call that the belly of the curve, I, I, I guess, um, as well. Okay, when, I, when I look at the fixed income market, and it has to come over to equity. I mean, I know you and Lizanne Saunders are barely on speaking terms, but if I have a Kathy Jones bond economy, that leads to a higher reward PE multiple, right? Where I've got to reset my equity valuation off of your world, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously the discount rate matters for um, valuations and equities, and that's been a probably a pretty big component of what's driven the equity mm -hmm. market. But Lizanne would tell you to watch the E part as well. So some of those downward revisions to corporate profits that we've seen in the GDP revision right. have her a little bit concerned. What are you seeing on the demand side right now in terms of that insatiable desire for paper? Is there a lot of issuance right now to take up uh, the demand? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you were in a position to be a borrower right now, you would certainly want to issue bonds at these yields. Kathy Jones, thank you so much. Uh, I greatly, greatly appreciate it with Schwab this morning. For the President and for the Trump administration's views on the jobs report, I'm pleased to say that we're joined on Bloomberg Television and on radio by Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director. Good morning to you, Larry. Good morning, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, great to have you with us. I can't think of a Payrolls Friday where we've barely talked about Payrolls Friday because everyone wants to talk to me about trade. So where do you want to start? I think we should just start with the headline. It's the trade story. So many people, Larry, are trying to figure out the minimum condition of success for the following month to avoid this September 1st tariff increase. Have we got any idea what that is, Larry? Well, I, I don't want to speculate on that. Look, um, in, in some sense, the story is very straightforward. Uh, our team returned from Shanghai, Ambassador Lighthizer, Secretary Mnuchin. Uh, we met with, we all met with the president yesterday, talked about it. The president himself is not satisfied with the progress uh, of the talks. 
uh, with respect to agriculture, with respect to structural items. Uh, even he's still concerned about the uh, sale, outlawing the sale of fentanyl in China. So he did tweet uh, and in, put on tariffs of 10 percent. That'll come on the 300 billion remaining balance September 1. But look, Jonathan, it, it was a very respectful tweet. It was a very matter of fact tweet. And he clarified some of that or added to some of that uh, yesterday when he had his uh, <clears throat> press uh, haggle, uh, gaggle and said, really, the issue of tariffs and the relationship depends on the progress or the lack of progress uh, for a trade deal between the two great countries. So Larry, it was a respectful letter and it's a constructive letter. And, you know, we believe the president expects and our team expects to be meeting with the China team in early September. Can we assume, though, that if the Chinese begin buying agricultural products between now and September, we can avoid that tariff increase? Would that be sufficient? Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to speculate, you know, can avoid and so forth. I would say from our talks internally that that would be a plus. That would be a very good plus if they start buying agriculture products in size. It would certainly help the story. At the moment, the president followed that tweet up with um, some more aggressive language, Larry, I think you'd say. Until such time that there is a deal, we will be taxing the HAL out of China. Larry, how do you expect the Chinese res to respond to that language? Uh, well, we will see. I don't want to speculate on that. Uh, there's some things coming out of Beijing today, and we will be evaluating these statements. I, I don't want to get ahead of the story uh, at all. We'll see a day at a time. But again, there's certainly a month here before the tariffs go into place. A lot of things can happen in a month. A lot of good things can happen in a month. So let's just see what happens. I don't, I don't like to predict or speculate on any of this. Well, Larry, I appreciate that. But just to understand the premise of that statement, we will be taxing the HAL out of China. If these tweets become policy on September 1st, taxes will be going up on U.S. consumers as well, won't they? Well, look, I, the consumer issue, you know, we've been down this road discussing it with respect to prior tariffs. You know, our view is any impact on U.S. consumers is, is, is de minimis and minuscule. And we have models to show that, you know, look, the, probably the strongest aspect of the American economy today, uh, including this jobs report, is precisely consumer spending and consumer income. Uh, and that includes real income because there's no inflation. We think the economic burden uh, of these tariffs has fallen most heavily on China. Uh, they've had to slash prices in order to offset tariffs. That's damaged their profitability and their growth. There's a lot of movement of production and related supply chains uh, out of China uh, and going elsewhere. And so I, I really think that in terms of the American story, our economy is quite strong. Yeah. And unfortunately, in terms of the China story, I think their economy is quite weak. So, Larry, relatively speaking, I think most people would agree with that. But let's talk about some of those models. You've modeled this impact of an extra 10 percent on this 300 billion. That's been modeled internally. Can you share with us some of those findings that you've actually found? Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk to our team and see if we want to put any of that out. We have not yet 
we may. I'll get back to you on that. Okay, well, I'd love to talk to you about it because a lot of people are confused by it. Most people assume that if you put that tariff up to 10% on September 1st, there's going to be some real pass-through to the consumer because these are the retail items that haven't been touched so far. So are you saying that won't happen come September? Prices won't go up on everyday items for consumers because of this tariff? Well, I'm speaking in the aggregate, Jonathan. But uh, again, our experience and our modeling suggests that any consumer impact be very, very small and that the biggest burden in economic terms is falling on China. And I, you know, I think the Chinese economy is in a rather poor shape. I, I don't want the Chinese economy to be in bad shape. I'm just saying that's what's happened. Our economy is very strong. Their economy is very weak. They're losing market share. They're losing production. Uh, and they're probably not going to get that back. People are going yeah. elsewhere. Some people are coming back home to the United States. We welcome that with our very low corporate tax rates and our deregulation program and our easy access to energy and so forth. So I think it's a plus. But look, w uh, without forecasting, we expect to meet with the Chinese in September. And... Um, some good things may well come from that meeting. That is possible. At the moment, though, Larry, that manufacturing story abroad is starting to come into the United States. You see it in the ISMs. I'm not saying we're in contraction territory here in the United States, but you're starting to see them roll over. Are you not worried about that, that the weakness that's been triggered abroad from this trade story is starting to bleed into the U.S. economy? There's real signs of it, Larry. Uh, I don't deny that. I mean, w the United States is not immune from the world economy. Um, Maybe we can talk some about problems and policy mistakes in, in, in overseas. Uh, I am, however, heartened. Uh, by the way, new orders in that ISM were up nicely, so that's a good sign. Manufacturing itself in the industrial production report, as you may know, is up nicely in May and June. And durable goods, particularly so-called core CapEx durable goods, had a big increase in June after a decent increase in May. So we're looking for a comeback there. I yeah. mean, a lot of these issues, and I, I don't deny the hard goods sector has been slower. It's the consumer sector that's really dominating. But, you know, we have unfortunately faced two years of severe monetary restraint. Now, hopefully that period of monetary restraint is coming to an end. And I note that the money and bond markets are predicting several more uh, rate cuts from our central bank. So that's going to help the story. But we still have strong incentives in place uh, to produce uh, and work and invest. And I think that our economy is going to have a very strong second half. But, Larry, let's be clear here. The reason that Fed fund futures start to really price in a rate cut in September was after that tweet. It's the belief that this trade story is going to do some real damage to the U.S. economy. And that's what I'm struggling to get my head around. Going into 2020, we're going into campaign season now. I'd love to know what the message is from the party to the U.S. consumer and anyone working in manufacturing that we're going to push this. We're going to tax the how, so to say, out of China until they break and give us a deal. How far are you willing to go with this? Well, Jonathan, I, I just want to note in today's jobs report, not only 164,000, which is a solid number, uh, households, which is the small business number, household employment was up 283,000. Here's one very important number. 
civilian labor force up 370,000. Last month it was up 335,000. People are coming out of the woodwork to come back to work yep. because of better job opportunities, better job training opportunities, and higher wages. That's so important. And we just got, and this is so important to the story of the strength of the U.S., the wage and salary numbers revised up across the board. The last 12 months, Wages and salaries rising at 5.1 percent with uh, no, I beg your pardon, 5.5 percent with an above 8 percent saving rate, which is absolutely phenomenal. And the biggest gainers in all of this are the low end, the middle and low end people, the blue collar workers and so forth. In fact, the bottom 10 percent is the biggest gainer. Uh, some of our critics on the other side might want to check those facts to improve their own analysis. So I think we're in very, very good good shape here at home. Larry, looking at the equity market, it's not in good shape over the last couple of days. Granted, it's been a fantastic year for U.S. equities, but there's some real weaknesses that has emerged in the last 24 hours. The president said to reporters yesterday he wasn't concerned at all about the negative reaction from markets. I expected that a little bit because people don't understand quite yet what's happened. Is this a change of stance from the White House? There used to be a real concern about equity markets. Have we pivoted? Well, no, Jonathan, I'll go back to what you said two sentences ago. We've had a heck of a year. The indexes are up more or less 20%. And I think that is, by the way, foreshadowing a very strong uh, economic growth period for the rest of 2019 and on into 2020. It's been a fabulous stock market. And by the by, encouragingly to me at least, in terms of the key sectors in the stock market, the hard goods sectors, the industrial sector, transports have had a terrific comeback. I noticed chips and semiconductors, too. That tells me that any pause uh, in the economy in hard goods last year, yeah. undoubtedly related to the monetary tightening from the Fed, that pause may be coming to an end. And that's why I'm pretty darn optimistic. When I look at today's job numbers and I see all these literally hundreds of thousands of people returning to the labor force, I say something very good is cooking out there. Well, Larry, let's just f follow up on that question, though. I asked you, the president said that he's not concerned about the negative reaction from markets. Is that a change in stance from the White House? No, he, as, as I understood it, he was just referring to the overnight immediate response. Uh, a day or two in the stock market doesn't make a trend, for heaven's sake. Well, let's have a final question on the foreign exchange market, shall we? Last week was really confusing for me, confusing for many others as well. You ruled out any FX intervention. Then the president said, I didn't say I'm not going to do something. Just what is the policy right now? Look, um, in brief, I mean, I have the president's quotes here. Uh, he did say, I wouldn't say I'm not going to do something now, but he said, look, having a strong dollar, there's a reason it's so good. Having a strong dollar is having a strong dollar. Having a strong currency shows what an amazing country. Uh, I stand by those remarks. I thank him for making them. We have uh, ruled out any currency intervention. I mean, the problem here, and this president has said many times, it's not that our dollar is strong and reliable and dependable. We love that. Money is coming in here from all over the world. We are the hottest economy. We're the only real major country with solid growth and investment returns. The problem here is that President's concerned, correctly in my view, that other countries may be manipulating their currencies, perhaps to get some short-term trade advantage. We don't like that. We want a level playing field. 
and the G20 arrangements have always called for currency stability, as Secretary Mnuchin would attest. That's the issue. We worry more about what the others are doing. We're perfectly happy to have the U.S. dollar as the center of the world's economy. We are the world's reserve currency, and we aim to keep it that way. With that in mind, Larry, when can we expect you to assign these countries as currency manipulators? The Treasury Secretary has a watch list. Where's the final list of currency manipulators? When do we get it? Well, Secretary Mnuchin has expanded his watch list. That is a Treasury function. I'm going to leave it to him. He's uh, covering it very well. He's a very smart guy and a great leader over at Treasury. So we will follow that story as it unfolds. Larry Kudlow, great to catch up with you. Appreciate all the time you've given us this morning on an important morning as well. The National Economic Council Director joining us from the White House. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.